If you have your Bible, would you turn to the book of Ephesians chapter 1? Ephesians chapter 1. It's page 827 in the Bibles that the church provides. As we've been going through the book of Ephesians, we have been looking at God's plan for fixing the universe. If perhaps this week you experienced some brokenness, perhaps whether in the workplace or family or neighborhood or health or whatever it might be, perhaps you are one of the relatives of the dear saints that I mentioned in the prayer, and you're feeling brokenness or despair or discouragement, I'm here to tell you that this is not how God intended it to be. He did not create this world to be filled with pain and sorrow and emptiness and discouragement. But when he created us, he gave us free will as human beings. And we have used that free will to mar his creation through disobedience. But at the end of the day, although we have free will, we are not the ultimate beings in the universe. And God has seen the mess we have made of his world, and he's determined to do something about it. And he has a plan, and Ephesians lays out that plan for us, that God is bringing all things back together in Jesus, that he's fixing stuff, and that's the plan. And we began our series in Ephesians by saying that Paul, in order to introduce what he's doing, what God is doing, has been systematically, is systematically going through the major things that we believe as Christians as a way of explaining the plan that God is implementing. And so what we're doing in our first few weeks in this series in the book of Ephesians is I'm teaching through the same things that Paul is teaching through. That we are taking the major beliefs that we have as Christians and taking a few minutes each week to step back and to really review and to study and to understand those. And this morning, we are thinking about what God is doing. And last week, we started with God himself. And as I taught, I tried to explain that God and his essence is spirit light and love and this God who is spirit light and love eternally exists in three distinct and unique persons the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit and God who exists in these three distinct persons has as his primary activity the creating sustaining and rescuing of life. That's God. This morning we want to move forward in thinking about the basic beliefs of Christianity and think now about the primary actor through whom God is executing his plan to rescue the world. If you're in Ephesians 1, I'm going to read verses 7 through 12. It says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect 
when the times have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. <clears throat> that in Ephesians chapter 1, <clears throat> Paul begins in verse number 7 by saying, in him we have redemption. Now redemption is the word that we've been talking about here. It means rescue. That when we say that God has a plan to fix this broken world, to rescue those of us who are stuck in darkness and in pain, this is the word we're talking about. It's the word redemption. And in verse 7, Paul is telling us that the rescue of the world the fixing of the universe happens in him. And this morning, what we want to focus on is the one in whom rescue is taking place. He is the one whom God is using to execute salvation for the world. Now, who is the in him? Well, this is Jesus. And this morning, I want to spend some time teaching about the person of Jesus. Last week, we focused on God. This morning, we want to think systematically about the person of Jesus. And in order to do that, I want to use his full name as a way, uh, sort of an outline, if you will, for talking about him. His full name is found at the beginning of the book of Ephesians. In verse number two, do you see where it says, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Same thing in verse three. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's his full title. That's the one when we say, in him we have redemption. It's in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we think about him, I want to use those three words that are in his full title to explore and better understand who he is. So we begin with the first word in the title, and that is the word Lord. He is the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this word Lord or this title Lord really comes out of the book of Exodus. In the book of Exodus, God sees the children of Israel and they are in bondage and captivity in Egypt. And they are crying out for somebody to help them. They need rescue. And the God who is by definition love hears their cries and determines to come and rescue them. And part of the rescuing process is that when God shows up, he introduces himself to Moses and to the children of Israel. And we looked at part of that introduction last week in Exodus chapter 34. When God is telling Moses and the children of Israel who he is, he says, I am the Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God. Lord 
represents this God. Exodus 15, verse three, says it this way. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. So when you want to designate the God who created the world, who sustains the world, who comes to rescue the people of Israel, who introduces himself as the self-existent one, the designation for that God is the Lord. Well, this is the first word in Jesus' full title. And what it reminds us of is that this person who we are talking about, in whom rescue and redemption happens, is himself the Lord, meaning he is God, that he is 100% fully divine. The person of Jesus is Lord. This is why in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, in Jesus, the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. He's not part God. He's not half God. He's not a little bit God. The fullness, 100% God. That if you want the fullness of God in bodily form, it's the person of Jesus. This is why in Titus chapter 2, verse 13, Paul says, while we wait for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior. Who is our God? Jesus Christ. You see, in his title, the first word represents the fact that he is totally and completely God. The God who created the world. The God who rescued Israel. The God who sustains all that. That is the Lord. And he's Jesus. This is why in Philippians chapter 2, it says that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, that everyone will come to the understanding that this person that we are talking about is fully and completely God, Lord. This is why in the beginning of Ephesians, it opens with grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's because grace and peace flow equally from the Father and from Jesus because they are both equally God. They are equally the source of grace and peace in this world. And this is why when we interact with those who are Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or Muslims or Unitarians or even Orthodox Jews that we have to respectfully disagree about this person. Because in all of those systems, Jesus is important. Jesus might be a God. Jesus might be an important prophet. He might hold a high place. But it is not what we say. The Bible says that Jesus is Lord, that he is fully and completely God. He is equal in every way with the Lord God himself because he is Lord. And this differentiates what we believe from everything else. Jesus is fully 
and completely and totally 100% God. And the first word in his title reminds us of that fact. Let's move now to the second word in his title. He's not just Lord, he is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the word Jesus, that's his name. That was the name that was given to him when he was born. This is what Matthew 1 is talking about. Speaking of his mother Mary and the fact that she was pregnant out of wedlock and that her uh, betrothed husband Joseph, or her, the person she was engaged to, was thinking about uh, putting her away because of this pregnancy. An angel of the Lord appears and says to Joseph in a dream, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. That this Lord, this person who is Lord over all the universe, this person will become human. And the word Jesus, or the name Jesus, is the reminder that this person that we are talking about is not only God, he is also human. You're human today because you were born of a woman and your parents gave you a name. I'm human because I was born of a woman and my parents gave me the name Jim. Jesus is human because the Holy Spirit came upon a human woman, Mary, and she became pregnant with the Lord of the universe and gave birth to a son and he was given the name Jesus at God's command, but his parents named him. Now here's a crazy thought. Jesus, this person that we're talking about, has existed for all of eternity because he's the Lord. He's God, he's fully God. He was there in the creation of the world. But if you interacted with him back then, you wouldn't call him Jesus because that wasn't his name yet. Isn't that crazy? That at this moment in Matthew 1, that's when the person we're talking about is given the name Jesus. Before that, he's still the Son of God, he's still the Lord of the universe, but he's not named Jesus until this moment. Which teaches us that at this moment, this moment that Mary gives birth, Something unheard of has happened. God has changed, if you will. You see, last week I said that God is, in his essence, spirit. That means he has no body. But in some ways, that changes in Matthew chapter 1. It's still true that God the Father does not have a body. And it's true that God the Holy Spirit does not have a body. But in Matthew 1, something 
cosmic happens that has never happened before. God becomes human. God now does have a body in Jesus. That the, the giving of this name Jesus represents that something has started that's new in the person of the Trinity. Is that not weird? Is that not crazy to think about? That from this moment on, forever and ever and ever, God is now human. Not just partly human. Not just pretending to be human. But genuinely human. Born of a woman. And when Jesus was born, he didn't know how to walk. He didn't know how to talk. If I can not be irreverent about it, he had to go through potty training. It's true. He had to experience puberty. There were times in which Jesus was trying to fix something and he wasn't physically able to do it. That there were disappointments that he experienced in life when things didn't go the way he wanted them to go. That he experienced the pain of a close associate betraying him. That he knows the feeling of sadness and despair when you look out at death in this world. That he himself has experienced that deep gnawing, that horrible pain of thinking about his own death. The fear that comes in journeying into the unknown. That he has experienced all of those things because he is fully and completely human. You see, God, Jesus never stopped being God. But at this moment in Matthew chapter one, the one who is fully and completely Lord adds to his divinity 100% humanity so that the person that we are talking about is the Lord Jesus. 100% God, 100% human. How that's possible is a mystery beyond our understanding. But at that moment, the God of the universe became a human forever and ever and ever. And something in the universe changed forever because of it. The second word in his title reminds us that this person we're talking about is totally and completely human, as human as you or I. The third word in his title, he is the Lord, which means he's 100% God. Jesus reminds us that he is 100% human. The last word in his official title is Christ. Now this is the term for the Jewish Messiah. This is the idea that when God looked out into this beautiful world that he had created and saw sin entering the world through our free will choices in the persons of Adam and Eve, that God began at that moment to explain that someone was coming to fix the whole thing. That even in the Garden of Eden, when sin first happened, God announced, there will come somebody who is descended from this woman, 
who will crush the head of Satan. To the patriarch Abraham, he said, there will come someone who is your descendant through whom I will bless the whole world. To King David, he said, there's somebody coming who I will set up a kingdom of justice and mercy and his reign will not end. To the prophets, God said, there's somebody coming who will deliver the whole world from bondage and darkness. This promised coming rescuer is known as the Messiah. That's the name. It's just the Hebrew word for anointed, meaning it's the one, the person God is choosing to rescue the world. Well, that Hebrew Mashiach, when translated into Greek, is translated Christos. It's simply the word to acknowledge that this person is the savior of the world, the long-awaited rescuer. He is the Lord Jesus Christ, the fully divine, fully human savior of the world. And that's what the title Christ reminds us. Now, how? is Jesus the savior of the world. First Timothy chapter two tells us, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. When there is a problem in a relationship, when two people don't agree or don't get along, when there's been some sort of rift or some sort of separation, often what's necessary to bring two opposing parties back together is a mediator, a go-between, somebody who can go to this party and to that party and to bring them back together again. What Paul is saying in 1 Timothy is, is that humanity is separated from God because of our sin. Because we have chosen to disobey God, we've turned our backs on him. And as a result, there is a rift in the relationship between God and humanity. But the problem is, if God is the source of all life, which we said last week, if you turn your back on the source of all life, the only result is death, separation. But what God did is he brought a mediator someone to mediate between these two positions so that we might be reconciled back to God. You see, it's because that Jesus is 100% God and 100% human that he is able to save the world because he is the mediator between God and humanity. He is fully and totally God and at the same time fully and completely human and therefore is uniquely positioned to bring God and humanity back together again. Now Timothy tells us there's a cost to do that. That when there has been a rift in a relationship or a broken thing that has happened, restitution is often required. Timothy tells us in 1 Timothy we're told that Jesus not only is the mediator, he pays the ransom that's necessary so that restitution can take place. Amen. Ephesians 1, 7 tells us what that ransom was. 
says, in him we have redemption, this reconciliation, this restoring of brokenness through his blood. See, the payment for sin and separation is death. And so Jesus came as a mediator between God and humanity, being at the same time fully God and fully human, that through his death, he might pay the ransom so that the relationship can be restored. This is what the word Christ in his title reminds us. He is the savior of the world. So who is Jesus? He is the fully divine, fully human, savior of the world. Lord Jesus Christ, fully divine, fully human, savior of the world. Now this is an important truth. It's at the basis of all that we believe. But what are the practical applications for us today as Christians? I want to give you four that I want you to think about and take away from our teaching this morning on Jesus. The first is this, and it's actually for those who are not yet believers in Jesus. That in Jesus, God has provided a way for you to experience reconciliation with God. That Jesus is the mediator between God and humanity. You see, if you came here this morning and perhaps all week long you experienced a level of separation from God, that the world in which you're living in is a world that has a lot of darkness and a lot of pain and a lot of confusion and a lot of disobedience, and you may even be saying to yourself, how can there possibly be a God? Look at all of the suffering in this world. The response is, is that the suffering in the world does not disprove the existence of God. The suffering in this world simply demonstrates that the world is separated from God. And that separation is felt not only at a cosmic level, but in an individual level. That this morning, that you may be feeling separation from God, that the source of light and hope and joy and peace, oh, your life may be going great. You may have lots of material wealth. You may have lots of friends, but joy and peace and hope and assurance, the source of all of that is God. And if you are separated from him, you have no access to that. But the good news is, is that God has provided a mediator. That in your estrangement from God, there is somebody who is both on God's side and on your side. That he wants to bring the two of you back together again, and it is now possible. You see, Moses couldn't do that for you. Buddha can't do that for you. Mohammed can't do that for you. Darwin can't do that for you. You can't do that for yourself. Nobody else can do that because no other being in all of existence is at the same time fully God and fully human. There's only one, one mediator. That's why Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes back together with the Father except through me. Look, if there was some other way for humanity to be reunited with God, do you really think God would have become a human to pull it off? So if you're here this morning and you're separated from God, 
The good news is, is there's a mediator. And he's ready to reunite you with God again. Second thing I'd like for you to consider, and it's something as I've tried to think about all week, I get more and more confused about it because it's just bigger and bigger. And I'd like for you to spend time thinking about the fact that because God became a human, it blesses humanity in ways that are hard to comprehend. Think about it. God is now human. It means a whole bunch of things. For example, it means that God's feelings about humanity are different than his feelings about dogs or about trees or about whales or about anything else in creation because God's not a dog and he's not a tree and he's not a whale, but he is a human. Isn't that crazy? God is human. Do you understand the dignity that gives that to the human race? That even in creation, it exalts us above the angels because even the angels cannot say, God is one of us. And when Jesus united himself to humanity, it raised the dignity of humanity in such a way that it's hard to comprehend. It means that God will never be done with the human race. That he will never throw us away. He will never destroy us. Because he's one of us. He is human. It means that in Jesus' fight against Satan, sin, and death, he's not simply fighting for us. He's fighting as one of us. He is our great champion. He is our representative. When he goes to battle, we don't have to because he's one of us. He's doing it in our place. It's crazy to think about. It's amazing to believe that when Jesus intercedes for us, he's doing it as one of us. You know, sometimes I think about prayer this way, like, God and Jesus are sort of over here with the Holy Spirit and they're holding all the great blessings and I'm over here kind of begging for some of those. <laughs> That's not actually how it works. You see, God, Jesus is just as much human as he is God, which means he's just as much on my side that when he prays, it's on my behalf as a fellow human. That what he's asking the Father for, he's asking for us as humans. It's crazy to think about. And even perhaps most mind-blowing of all is that because in the person of Jesus, deity and humanity are now united in one person, the door is now open for those of us who never were divine to become partakers in the divine nature, according to 2 Peter chapter 1. Paul uses the language of being conformed to the image of Christ. That you and I, as believers, are not simply made in the image of God. We're actually being transformed into being more and more like Christ. That we who are merely humans can now begin to partake and participate in the divine nature. Jesus opened that door because in him humanity and deity are united in one. The door is now open for us to experience God's presence in us.
It's crazy. It's crazy to think about. The third thing I'd like you to take away from this morning is to recognize the fact that Jesus is the savior of the world. He's Christ because he is 100% God and was willing to become human. And the point is this, is that he has shown us that the path to rescuing others is through incarnation. That it's in becoming something that we are not to reach those that we love. Parents, are you here? Do you want to rescue your teenage children from the world? Become like them. Listen to the music that they are listening to. Engage in the activities they're engaging in, even if they're not things you would normally like to do. This is the pattern Jesus set for us. He became one of us. He did not stand at a distance in judgment over us, but joined us. You want to rescue your teenage? Join them. Become what they are. Be with them. You want to help somebody in the city of Grand Rapids who is poor and lives in the inner city? The goal is not stay in the suburbs and mail your check. The point is, is sell your possessions. Go move into the neighborhood. Send your kids to the schools that their kids are going to. That's how rescue works. It's incarnational. You want to see people in the Middle East come to faith? Move to the Middle East. Live among the people in the Middle East. Become like a Middle Easterner so that you might reach them. Rescue always works this way, that we become like the thing or the person we are trying to rescue. Not engaging in sinful behavior. When Jesus became human, he didn't engage in all the human sins we're doing, but he truly became one of us. And if you want to rescue a teenager or somebody trapped in poverty or somebody from another country, rescue always happens this way when we are willing to become something that we are not inherently so that we might reach them. The fourth thing that I'd like you to consider, and this is the most important, is that I said at the beginning of the sermon, the goal for today is I want each of us to walk out of here and to think, isn't Jesus amazing? Philippians says it this way, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus who being in very nature God, meaning he's the Lord, he's 100% God, did not consider his equality with God something to be held on to in such a way that he would not add anything to it. Instead, he took on the form of a servant. The Lord became the Lord Jesus. And he humbled himself. Now, the rest of it goes on to talk about his death. And often when we praise Jesus, we praise him for dying for us. And the symbol is the cross. And praise God, that is something to praise Jesus for. He died for us. Hallelujah. But it's interesting, that's not where Philippians starts. You see, sometimes when we think about somebody dying for us, we can use that same kind of language of a person in the military who gives their life so that we might have freedom. We might use that same kind of language for an organ donor who's willing to give up their organ so that another person might experience life, that it's not unheard of, that somebody might experience death 
for or on the sake of another person. But Philippians doesn't start there with Jesus. Where it starts is the fact that he being fully and completely God became human. Because if you're like me, in that previous point when I went through thinking about becoming a teenager or moving into the inner city and selling your possessions or moving over to the Middle East, like me, maybe you were saying quietly in the back of your head, oh Lord, please don't pick me. (laughs) Please don't pick me to do that. Do you know why? Because it would cost something to do that. But do you see what God is saying about Jesus? Us moving to the Middle East or into the inner city or becoming like a teenager doesn't even begin to remotely compare to what it was like for the God of the universe to become a human. Not for a few years, but forever and ever and ever. It's one thing if you say, yeah, I'll move into the inner city for three months. It's another thing to say, I'm moving there forever. You see, Jesus becoming a human, what can we compare that to? Would it be something like you and I, having experienced the beauty of living life as a human, a gorgeous sunset, reading a fun book, falling in love, enjoying a beautiful meal, having that and then choosing willingly to become what, a mouse? Living in the filth that mice live in? Eating what mice eat? Thinking about things the way that mice think of? What can you compare this to? That the God of the universe was willing to become human. That he is now one of us. This is why it is called Christ's descent. is because he goes down. It is a humbling of himself. And the reason Philippians starts here is because... What in all of existence could you compare this to? Who has ever descended this far and taken on humanity forever and ever? It's crazy for me to think about that in Matthew chapter one, when the Holy Spirit put the Lord of the universe into the womb of Mary, that God was accepting a change in who he was that would be true forever. And he did this for us. He did this so that he might rescue us. There is no going back. There is no undoing the incarnation. He will be human forever and ever. Yes, we praise him that he died on a cross because that too is inconceivable. But the beginning of the story is that almighty God became a human being and will now be a human for the rest of eternity.